super happy to be here today with Kale Zeldin, who is a new friend that I met on Twitter. <laughs> and uh, so this is our first time talking together. And we we kind of got connected um, most recently through a tweet that the Pope had made about social justice, and Jordan Peterson had responded to it in a way that set off kind of a fury. <laughs> and uh, I don't think it's necessary to maybe go into all of that, but it did bring up a question for me about this whole issue of social justice. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> That was the point I was trying to understand with many people in the corner who were upset with Jordan Peterson. And I have my own feelings about the term social justice because it, for me, it brings up um, all of the controversy over liberation theology back in the 70s. Mm -hmm. And, uh, <clears throat> but I wanted to learn from you, Kale, because you're Catholic. Mm -hmm. I wanted to learn from you what the Catholic perspective is on social justice and um, maybe talk with you a little bit about what you see as the causes of poverty, maybe the root causes of poverty, what can be done about these things. But before we get started, I wonder if you could just give me a little bit of your background so I know a little bit more about you and so my viewers know a little bit more about you. Sure, sure. I'm, a, um, I'm, I'm 50. I live in Rhode Island. Um, I'm a prep school teacher. I teach English and, um, I am a cradle Catholic. Uh, I was raised, my mom and dad are both devout people. Um, I, how would I put this? I sort of, uh, left my childhood faith for a couple of years, uh, in late high school. Uh, and I read my way back into the faith in early college uh, primarily through an encounter with um, uh, the Greeks. Um, it wasn't really so much reading um, Homer and Aristotle uh, that did it. It was just a recognition that there was a, uh, a whole um, body of knowledge that I had sort of arrogantly dismissed as even being possible. So I was really deep, deep, deep into the kind of um, ambient progressive myth um, that I grew up with, you know, as a, you know, as, as some people in this little corner will say, you know, we're raised by the set and, and, and I certainly was no, uh, exception to that, even though I was also raised as, as a, a fairly, you know, fairly conservative, uh, Catholic in Catholic South Louisiana, um, which is where I was, I was born in New Orleans and grew up in Baton Rouge. So, um, so yeah, so the, 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 my background is is that so anyway so I be, uh, because I I realized that I didn't really know anything I kind of did a deep dive in the great books um, and as I sort of made this sort of intellectual um, pilgrimage uh, uh, there was a sort of an accompanying spiritual pilgrimage so that by the time you know I was I don't know let's call it 2021 I was a pretty devout um, as devout as one can be I guess um, you know in in college. And, uh, but, but serious, I was serious about practicing my faith and, and serious about at least trying to practice my faith. And I was intellectually, um, convinced that the church, as I understood it, uh, but, but the, the, the Christianity was true. Um, and, and, uh, it rendered sort of the best, um, explanation as to why the world is as it is. Um, and honestly, I, 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 you know, I've, I've, I've continued to read deeply and and to uh, 
in a variety of different ways and subjects and perspectives. And, and I still uh, remain uh, a faithful um, uh, believer. And um, I, I think it still gives us the best explanation. Sometimes the details are, are um, uh, to be argued about. Um, but I would say that certainly in, in this sort of phase of my life, I'm a, I'm a firm believer in Lewis's mere Christianity as a sort of a baseline. Yeah, that was certainly foundational for me in my early walk, which was, I became a Christian in 1980. Yeah. I was already 32 years old at the time. So, um, were you raised just in a, a secular home or, a, yes, yeah. Okay. Completely okay. secular home. Um, I mean, they weren't militantly atheist or anything, but there was just, right. there was no, I didn't know anything. <laughs> yeah. And it was this yeah. out in California, Karen, or no, no, um, no. My father was in the military, so I okay. sort of lived everywhere Got it. until he retired when I was nine, and then we moved to Minnesota. So I oh, went okay. through the rest of elementary and high school in Minnesota, mm -hmm. and then after that, I ended up living in Iowa, which is where I became a Christian. Okay, okay. Um, but for the people who don't inhabit this little corner who might mm -hmm. stumble on our, <laughs> our talk here... What did you mean when you said raised by the set? <clears throat> uh, well, I, I think that's something I picked up from Grimm, I guess. Grimm Grimm. Yeah, um, yeah. I just, just wanted idea... to tell people. What yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, I, and he can um, correct us in the comments. Uh, but but I always take uh, Grimm to mean that, that you know, whatever our sort of home um, uh, script was, uh, whatever our locale was, um, you know, I was raised by watching who's the boss i was raised by watching um you know the happy days and in when when we got cable in 1983 or 82 you know i was raised by watching episodes of leave it to beaver and uh raised by watching music videos on mtv and i was raised by saturday morning cartoons and i was raised by um you know all those sorts of things i was certainly raised by steven spielberg uh, I was certainly raised by, um, you know, Indiana Jones and Star Wars. Oh my gosh, you know that was such a huge part of of what raised me. And so I just you imbibe those those default assumptions about life um, um, way in a way more I think compelling way than um, the catechism uh, that I was born in. Now, and I should say, uh, and this is not to throw my parents under the bus, but you know the 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 Catholicism, for instance, let's say that my mom grew up in. So she was born in the um, in the during uh, at the end of the war, um, and so her heavy sort of thick Catholic upbringing was old school. You know, they did the Baltimore Catechism, and you know they she was went to school with nuns, and so her appreciation of what the faith was was very thick, I would say, and it was sort of thickly coherent. Um, and um, when by the time I am in you know, grade school, because my, my parents sent us to Catholic schools, you know, uh, the, the council had happened, right? And so the Second Vatican Council Second had Vatican. really sort of changed uh, the way the church sort of saw itself and saw its business. And so I was raised in a much less uh, explicitly catechistic environment. I was very much more raised in that kind of 70s, 
early 80s ethos of, you know, um, you know, for lack of a better way, so sort of kind of hippie Jesus, you know, felt banners and kumbaya and and, and guitar masses and that sort of thing. And so um, my parents didn't, I think, fully understand that what we were getting at school was just not really the same thing. It didn't have the same kind of coherence. Um, and so um, part of the reason why I left the faith is that it just struck me as a fairly precocious, but definitely arrogant, you know, 10th grade or 15 year old that, you know, all this stuff was stupid, you know, and that Christians were stupid and, um, you know, that they weren't sophisticated like the people that I looked up to, which were rock stars and movie stars and, you know, that, that sort of thing. Um, and again, this was never anything that I was sort of consciously aware of. It was just sort of what it came to be. And so then when there, whenever there was any kind of friction between, so let's say what the church was teaching me um versus what i see modeled for me in pop culture it just wasn't even a contest and so i very uh, you know arrogantly you know dismissed my parents in that regard i mean i i still had a good relationship with them but i just didn't see the there there um and so it really so when i left uh, i left sort of what i thought was sort of dumb and shallow and um almost kind of like Mr. Rogers Z or something like that. Not to, not to, I like Mr. Rogers fine, but you know, it, it was that, that sort of that nice, that nice thing. And mm -hmm. so when I encountered um, the reality that um, for, for the greater part of the last couple of thousand years, you know, it, it wasn't until the last couple of hundred uh, that everybody believed in Christianity and, and, and including in those people were really, really smart people, you know, that I, that I, you know, I, and so that's, that was a real watershed moment. And then it was a moment in class. I was a freshman in LSU and we just got finished reading Homer's Iliad. And, um, the, and I loved it and I had a great teacher and he was fantastic. It later on, I found out that he was, uh, he was a Christian himself, but, uh, but a man really steeped in the tradition. And he made this pronouncement, um, uh, that he said something like, um, you know, the, uh, the um, the Iliad is uh, a true um, uh, achievement in in the history of mankind, and um, we have uh, never surpassed its greatness. We have equaled it on a couple of occasions, but we have never surpassed it in its um, in its achievement. And I knew what he was talking about, and I knew that he was right. And it really, really bothered me that he was right, because how can it be that something that is thousands of years old um, have not been surpassed? I mean, we have remote controls, you know, we have, um, you know, we have TV and, you know, and all those sorts of things. And so it really rocked my a kind of bedrock faith that I had kind of imbibed in the myth of progress. You know, we used to sort of joke, you know, oh, you know, you know, come on, man, it's like it's the 90s, you know, in, in 1990. It's like, so what, you know, and so that really reoriented my whole. Um, uh, so I had to confront the fact that I knew nothing and that there are lots and lots of smart people that had preceded me um, and they were really smart and they bought this whole Jesus thing so that if I was going to dismiss it, I had to really kind of do my homework. And so that was what, and, and I would argue, sort of go back to your original question, that the reason why um, I had been so grossly ignorant is that it, because I had allowed myself to be raised by, um, well, I guess what, what we might call in this little corner, I had allowed myself to be raised by spirits uh, of which I was unaware of as even being spirits, you know, so television, pop culture, movies, 
radio, uh, you know, all that sort of stuff. Well, yeah. And I mean, at the time, you probably had no idea that you were being arrogant. And uh, your parents probably had no idea what was going on inside your head, because there is just this difficulty of, of having lucid, deep, meaningful conversations when teenagers are teenagers and yeah. between teenagers and their parents. So they probably didn't even know. They probably had no idea that this new move in the church was leaving you without a foundation. Well, I remember uh, it, to that effect. So so my mom was um, a, a smart, it is a very smart woman and deeply, deeply immersed in scripture, uh, you know, counter to sort of the stereotype about um, Catholics you know, my mom sort of certainly breaks that those kind of stereotypes for two reasons or so three reasons. She's an Orthodox Catholic who like goes to adoration and goes to mass uh, every day. Um, and she's charismatic. And number three, she's deeply, deeply immersed in scripture. So just having that as a kind of model for me now, I didn't know what that meant. You have to understand, mm -hmm. but, but so her whole, so she got involved in the charismatic renewal, you know, in the mid seventies. Um, and so that was certainly different. Um, but what she was unaware of was just how much the sort of the, it was sort of two strains that had been going on inside of the church at that time in terms of Catholic schools and universities. Number one was the liberation theology thing, but the other one was sort of this sort of old, a slightly older tradition, um, but the modernist tradition. And so, you know, the faith that I got was either inflected by this kind of um, what well, we would call now or, you know, struggling to define, you know, um, uh, social sort of social justice Catholicism. Um, but it was also one that was very demystified. It was very modernist in its bent, so much so that um, in one of my uh, textbooks in my, I think it was my freshman, no, it was my sophomore year of high school because freshman year was Old Testament in theory, uh, sophomore year was New Testament in theory. But um, the, the, the miracles uh, were characterized, not even characterized, were explicitly said to be um, uh, mass hypnosis and kind of sort of group like tricks, basically. So there was this kind of this under. You were, you were in a Catholic high school. Yeah, I was in a Catholic. Wow. High school. Yeah. So <laughs> wow. this so you're talking like literally like 1988, 89 you know, thereby I graduated high school in 91. And so like, but again, as a kid, I'm like, all right, like whatever, like that's what the textbook says, it what says. And I had a, my, my, my best friend um, uh, was an evangelical Christian, but he was at the Catholic school with me. And um, he was like losing his mind over this. And I didn't understand what he was losing his mind over because he was like a, you know, an evangelical Christian, like took scripture very seriously, uh, was big into C.S. Lewis and Tolkien and all this kind of stuff that that I kind of liked too, but I didn't have the scripture background that he had. And he's like, what are you talking about? Like the miracles are real. It can't not be real. And and so um, so so one day we were just talking and my mom overheard us talking about religion class and she just didn't believe that that's what the textbook said and my, my friend says no mrs ellen like look it's right here we took out the book and she was like beside herself she could not believe that this kind of um uh modernist i mean her heresies right what was being passed off in a catholic school in a catholic textbook as as sort of normative so um you can kind of see why somebody like me uh you know I was a little bit more curious than the average bear. I definitely did a lot of reading, you know, that I just sort of saw the whole thing as like, well, this is just some kind of big joke. Right. 
And so then the, the reason why I left the church in high school uh, was because I sort of did a quick kind of mental calculus, because if they were going to um, distill the faith down into a kind of, you know, you do you, uh, 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 um, uh, what's the phrase I'm looking for? In other words, like a kind of like a do-gooderism, right? Like you know, go to a soup kitchen and 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 all of that. Again, obviously, nothing wrong with it. It's an important part of our faith. But if that's all it is, then I'll just skip the waking up on Sunday morning bit and just call it a day, you know. And, and so now I think I would call that a kind of a sort of a, a, a early versions of moralistic uh, therapeutic deism. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, but again, I didn't, we didn't have that kind of vocabulary then I just, so for me, it was like, well, this whole, the whole Jesus thing is a complete joke. I'll just go be a good person on my own time and not really have to matter, 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 bother myself with, you know, the sort of the, the sort of the moral or personal elements of these things. I had my own experience, um, long before I was Christian, when I was in uh, college, I happened to go to a Lutheran college because when I was in high school, my choir director happened to be one of the only kind people I had ever met. Wow. Wow. <laughs> and uh, and he was a wonderful choir director and he had graduated from Concordia College in Moorhead, Minnesota. And so yeah. I made it my yeah. goal. I want to go to Concordia College and be like my choir director. Yeah, yeah. And I went to Concordia College not I, I wasn't a christian i didn't have any background at all yeah but you had to take a religion class i was only there one semester because i ran out of money because i was so dumb i didn't realize <sighs> that you had to have a plan for the future and my parents i had gotten a, a scholarship sufficient to pay my first semester but that was that that was it that was it yeah. that was it and uh, <clears throat> my parents didn't have any money to send me to college so anyway i'm here in this first semester and here's this religion professor and he's telling us all about the miracles and how they're they actually can be explained by perfectly um, scientific means. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, that, that was that was that was exactly that was the yeah. script that was thrown at us. So yeah. so the the uh, the the uh, crossing of the Red Sea that was an earthquake that caused the yep. the yep. waters to divide and you know yep. he just goes through all of them. Mm -hmm. And he's some sort of Hebrew scholar or something. I didn't know what he was talking about. First of all, I didn't hadn't I didn't have much background in the Bible at all, aside from having been raised by the set of the Ten Commandments movie, yeah, right. exactly. Ben-Hur, yeah. and all of that kind of thing. That was my religious background. Yeah. But even I felt uncomfortable with that, not having yeah. not having a religious background. I just thought, well, wh why are you telling me this? Here you right. have this religious book that you that you adhere to. You call yourself one of these people, but then you're trying to find scientific reasons to believe what you believe you know it didn't make any sense to me well because so. it doesn't right i mean in other words it's it's I, I don't know if you've i know you probably watched your fair share of jonathan pajot but i remember one time he was talking to and again I, I don't even remember who he was talking to but he was talking about you know the the way that we teach the bible to kids you know and in a main in mainstream capacities even in, you know in formal churches and, you know, he just laughed that, you know, you look at like a regular Bible and I can pull one off right here, but like the NAB or something like that, it's got, you know, it has the text, 
And then it's got all these kind of like these sort of technical notes behind it. And then it has all these sort of series of explanations, which are essentially like saying like, yeah, all the reasons in these footnotes is why you don't have to sort of take that stuff seriously. Like it's a complete taking you out mm -hmm. of what a story is meant to do. And the story, of course, is our, the stories, of course, are meant to enchant us. And I mean that in sort of the fullness of that of that phrase, right, that they're supposed to sort of uh, envelop us in such a way so that you sort of throw yourself into the story. But you have all these sort of footnotes and explanatory things that are essentially saying, yeah, like none of that's real. Right. And so it's it's so fascinating to me that your reaction to hearing that kind of modernist or neo-modernist approach talk to you by the press is like, well, what are you doing? Like, you're, you're what, what, what's the basis for belief in any of this? Well, and the other thing is, so I became a Christian in 1980. I already had one child. So okay. Um, okay. she's she became a Christian the same summer through some things that she heard at summer camp. Mm -hmm. So she's going by the time she was in Sunday school, she was already in fifth grade. So it was considerably more robust. And, and yeah. I happened to be in a very, um, a very good church. I was really, really lucky for my first yeah. church. It was a little country church, yeah. but the pastor had been a missionary to the Navajo Indians for 20 years. So he had a deep understanding of reality Yeah, <laughs> where wow, the rubber yeah. hits the road sort of. Right. I bet. Yeah. I bet. Um, but then in later years, I, I just noticed I used to help out with teaching Sunday school. And then later I had another yeah. child. And the whole thing with Sunday school, the way that these stories are taught to children is so watered down. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I started to feel like this is really bad because what we're really doing is inoculating That's right. kids against the Bible. They hear this simplistic version of some story. Mm -hmm. It, it's like the way that the fairy tales have been redrawn since since Grimm, right? You take all the sorrow out of it and all the pain and, and everything. You just have this pretty little thing that you can put on a flannel board. Mm -hmm. So by the time they're in high school and you try to tell them something about the Bible, they're like, oh, I've been there. I've done that. I, right. I know that story. You don't know that story. Like Jordan Peterson can take the book yeah. of Genesis and spend 45 hours laying out the depths and he just barely scratched the surface. Right. So, yeah. um, yeah, I think the way we educate our children in the churches is a catastrophe. Well, you know, it's like this, it's like, um, take a movie, you know, that was really like, I watched, uh, my, my kids are a little bit older right now, you know, they're in, um, middle school and high school. And, but I remember, you know, 10 years ago it was, you know, I probably, watched with my kids something like Finding Nemo, I don't know, 10, 15 times, right? Yeah. It's a wonderful movie. It's it's a it really uh just from a film writing standpoint, a screenplay writing standpoint, they're 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 perfect. Um uh which is something that I I I anyway, uh it's perfect and just great storytelling. But it would be like this. Imagine if you and I sat down with our kids to watch Finding Nemo and um after the first um um 25 seconds we pressed pause and we said okay kids now what you're looking at right now is not real 
Okay, what it is, it is it's drawn, it's rendered actually in a thing we call a computer. And the computer, you know, sketches, you know, thousands of frames per second based upon an artist's rendering of, of the 3D model. Now you take a really high-end graphics card, you can render this almost in real time, giving us the sense that this is a fish who's talking to us. Now you should know that fish, you know, you really they don't really talk. <laughs> okay. Um, but 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 it is important that you understand that that the way in which uh, they got this particular fake fish to talk is they have a an actor who is sitting in a soundstage. And in that soundstage, the actor is reading lines that are not even written. He, he This is not what he really thinks. They're actually written by somebody else. And so this actor is voicing this character we call Nemo. And Nemo, um, you should know, is a reference to this, you know, and, and go on and then say, okay, everybody got that good. Okay, let's just let's play, press play again. So we'll press play and then we'll not, we'll watch the next minute and we'll press stop. Like now, kids, what you have to understand is when Nemo's mother uh, is killed by the Barracuda on the re, you know, like it's not re, I know, I'm, I'll stop now, but you, you get the kind of idea like there's, it's it's designed to keep you out of the story or to use your words to inoculate you from what the story does in its power now as you know since you 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 have had children like a kid can watch a story again and again and yeah. again yeah. and there is such an insight you know we adults are the ones who get this wrong right because to be able to be moved by finding nemo 10 15, 20 times is in fact the insight. You know, we are the one, you know, we adults are the ones who have the problem because we are, you know, we we need novelty, right? You know, we long for it, but the kid, the child knows um, the good thing when they see the good thing and they want more of that good thing and you can keep hitting that good thing. So um, I think that the way we teach scripture, for instance, is completely backwards. You know, it is, it, it, it's almost um, uh, reverse engineered to get people to not have faith um than it is to sort of to seek some level of understanding you know there's sort of this strange separation of understanding and and um a faith that has been ripped apart i think well i i don't know how you feel about this because i i have people from both sides who would attack me for this idea um but i've been in a lot of different kind of churches over the years. And like I said, originally I was in this little country church, mm -hmm. the way the, the way that I learned in this little country church, we had, of course, we had church all the time. We had church in the morning. We had church at night on Sunday and then Wednesday um, night. You and we had church. Wednesday night uh, yeah. Bible studies. And then we had small group in our homes. And so, I mean, we were really connected. Mm -hmm. And uh, when we would have a Bible study with a small group of people, there would be somebody in the group who was a, a seasoned Christian and they would sort of act as a facilitator. They might give a little bit of an introduction to a book, a little bit, but then we would all read the book together. We would read the scriptures together and then we would each, um, it, it had originally been a, a Quaker church, which is based on a lot of silence, right? But by the time this other pastor had come in, it would be more like what you'd call a Bible church or an evangelical church. Yeah, um, but anyway, they, some of the old Quakers still had this thing about silence, you know, so they'd give a little bit of an introduction. We'd pray. We'd spend a little time in silence. We would read the book together. And then as thoughts would arise in us, well, the way that this comes to me in my life is this. And then we would talk about the meaning of something, you know, it, it had this impact on me. 
I can see how God did this in my life this week. That sounds very much like what's happening here with this Bible character. And so it was very integrated in our lives. And the conversations were incredibly deep and meaningful. And I just felt like the scriptures got integrated into me that way. Now, later, I went to a Bible church for many years with a lot of very erudite people. And there were a lot of doctors and lawyers and physicists and all kinds of people in the congregation. And the teachers were incredibly intellectual. But the way they did Bible study in small groups is somebody would come in and teach for 45 minutes in the Bible study. And then maybe they'd ask you a few questions at the end, which if you got a little off track from what might be, you know, considered sensible, <laughs> they'd rein back in to sure. the way you were supposed to answer the questions. And then maybe there would be 10 minutes of coffee and fellowship or something like that. Yeah. So it never that never did anything for me. Although there are a lot of people who say that, that there has to be more academic control over how the word gets interpreted versus this idea of just individuals allowing the Holy spirit to work in them to bring more um, depth into the study. So I don't know how you think about that. Well, it's funny. Well, so we, I've done both of those, right. Um, you know, we have a tradition um, that comes out of the monasteries called Lexio Divina, which mm-hmm. sounds sounds to me a lot, or at least the version that I've experienced, sounds to me a lot like what you were describing in your country church. Mm-hmm. You know, whereas you take, let's say, the you know, um, let's say you take the parable of the prodigal son, you know, as as the text for the day, right? And and the way it works is that you know you read, you know, someone, uh, you, the group leader reads it out loud, and then you have you know a, a set time of silence right so you read you read the parable and you have like you know three minutes five minutes of silence a good amount right to, uh, an, an, an amount of silence that you start getting really kind of uncomfortable um which is sort of i think because you have to pierce through that uh and i of course struggle with this because i like to talk and so um so anyway you do that and then you read it again and then the, so then after the second time you read it out loud you know, you're asked, you know, does anybody, did, were you struck by any, anything in that passage? And so you'll kind of go around the room and say, oh, I, you know, I, uh, I'm struck by the older brother's response or, you know, why, you know, anyway, you you, you could do, you know, mm-hmm. was there a phrase or anyway, so you go around and you do this like four times. And so after uh, about a span, it takes about 45 minutes to do it, but it's, it's very much that it's, it's, it's uh, a kind of unfiltered uh, experience of scripture sort of in the wild um you know and and there there's no like orthodoxy check uh you know that the, there's none of that right and 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 you know anyway so i've been through versions of that and i think that's incredibly impactful but then i think there's also a place for that kind of more of a class is sort of what you're describing to mm-hmm. me which is a master teacher is sort of taking you through a text and taking you out of the text sometimes to take a look at this thing and then kind of putting you back in and so i think that that can be um, I think both are kind of necessary. I mean, I think that kind of intimacy that you uh, responded to uh, is so important because so many of us um, aren't uh, comfortable in that kind of intimate relationship to scripture, you know, uh, that it's sort of like, what, what is this weird thing that I'm doing? And and so I, 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 I would recommend more of that. I think that we need more of that, you know, minus the sort of the voice of the expert, you know, uh, and letting, 
you know, having a kind of faith that that the scripture can kind of the Holy Spirit can work uh, on you, the experiencer, um, in the midst of of a group of people gathered in His name, right? So I, I think that there's a richness to that 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 probably needs to happen, you know, way more than it than than it is happening now. That's for sure. Yeah, well, I mean, of course, I think there does need to be somebody in the group that can keep you from wandering off into heresy, which yeah. you know, which I was I was fortunate to have. Um, yeah. But this is really rich. We could go on this way for the whole time. But since mm -hmm. I roped you into this because I wanted to talk to you about mm -hmm. um, poverty and social justice. Mm -hmm. um, well, before we get started, let me yeah. let me read the. Uh, the tweet that you put out today. Oh, no, I just lost it again. There it is. Uh, apparently, Pope Francis tweeted again. His previous tweet was about hashtag social justice. Right. And, um, and he made some comments about social justice that sort of set off Jordan Peterson. And I think Jordan Peterson got set off strictly because of the terminology of social justice. Mm -hmm. I think that terminology triggered him the same way it triggers me. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I, I don't know what it. I don't know what Pope Francis meant by it or whoever yeah. manages his account. Right. <laughs> and I, yeah. And may, maybe maybe that's something we can get into and even more. You know, the name of the the, the, the Twitter account is called Pontifex. Right, the pontiff, uh, the bridge was kind of what that means. But um, you know, he doesn't work his own Twitter feed, right? The the, mm -hmm. the, the Twitter feed is, uh, um, you know, the Pope. Uh, maybe this is sort of a, a, a Vanderclayism or something. But like the Pope is um, not just the Pope, right? You know, it 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 it. Yes, he's a person. His name is, you know, um, his last name is Bergoglio and his assumed name when he became the Pope of the Roman Catholic Church is Francis, uh, the first of his name. Um, uh, you know, he's also the Pope, you know, capital T, capital P, you know, the Pope, right? So if you would have, you know, if you and I had run into the street 20 years ago, we might say that the Pope is saying X, Y, and Z. At the time, the Pope was John Paul II. You know, you know, uh, twelve years ago, you know, the Pope was uh, Benedict the Sixteenth. You know, street name Ratzinger. You know, right? So, you know, so that the, the, there's that part. Like in other words, there's the office of the Pope, uh, and then there's the, the, you know, the, the 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 assumed name of the person who is sitting in the seat of Saint Peter. You know, again, according to Roman Catholic theology. Um, so there's there are these kind of layers to to this, right? There's there's the there's the Pope that you and I might run into if we walked into the room with him. You know, there's this person, and he's wearing a white robe. Uh, and then there's the Pope that you see on on uh, you know an all at an audience or at a mass at St. Peter's. And then there's the Pope um, that's on the TV screen. Uh, there's the Pope of the Twitter, uh, you know, et cetera. And so that there's a like it's a sort of a super entity uh, that is more than just who he is in his particularity. So, like when Paul asked me the other day, would the would the Pope um, uh, have uh, an audience with with Jordan Peterson? And I immediately reacted, like, well, no, of course he wouldn't. Um, uh, you know, even if even if the Pope were like favorable towards somebody like Jordan Peterson, the Pope is like a whole system 
you know, uh, you know what I mean? Like he's this sort of this super uh, being, and I don't mean this in any kind of, um, I'm not being a, a Catholic sort of Homer here. I just mean like just the reality of the Pope. It's like the president. It's like, you know, the King. Um, and so, uh, you know, the med the medievals had this notion of the King's two bodies that I think might be helpful in this conversation, but basically uh, that the King was John, you know, uh, you know, and John was a man, right? But the king also represented the body politic, right? So that is a sort of a stand-in, um, so that the king's two bodies was sort of something re recognizable. That the king is never just the king, right? The king is also the king, and and so the pope is never just the pope. The pope is also the pope, um, and so I think a lot of what now this kind of language probably is meaningless to people outside of the Catholic. Um, worldview um it certainly would be kind of meaningless to somebody like jordan peterson because you know remember peterson's whole you know shtick uh and it's more than that i'm a fan i'm sure people on twitter will remind me of this all the time um i'm a fanboy apparently um but but the his thing right is to sort of live this radically integrated singularity of uh of um of uh integrity right you know the 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 and and I, and I i listened to your your conversation with um gavin ashenden and i'm it's a really a, a great conversation and i want to give you a serious shout out for like sticking with the conversation because i think you know there was a sort of a little mini drama in that show uh which i think goes to what you're trying to suss out here karen which is you know you he thought he was hearing a thing and he was already like sort of pre-worked up about the thing that he thought you were giving air to. And, you know, you let him speak and you let him do his thing. And you say, well, I, I want to push back a little bit. Like, that's not what, this is what I'm saying. And then what, what was amazing in this, in that conversation you had with him is that, I don't know, I don't exactly know the minute point in which you sort of broke down the, 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 you know, he kind of, kind of got his, his, his backup. Um, then you had this beautiful conversation about the power of witnessing to Christ, uh, uh, to a hurting world. I mean, you know, again, I don't know how much you remember the conversation, but just this beautiful, uh, witness to the power of prayer and personal, um, uh, praying over people and and how the gospel can change your life and it was really a, a wonderful conversation but i think what 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 gavin saw in the tweet what you saw in the tweet i think what i because i think i'm basically on team karen here um is that this 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 useful club that people use a club like as in a, as in like a hammer like is this this very useful hammer which is used to denude Christianity of its radical existential call to personal holiness, right? As a stand-in, you know, and so instead of that, it becomes a kind of um, political program, you know, and and a political program that, you know, would, would 
provide cover for those people who would, you know, contra Solzhenitsyn allow you to live by lies. And, you know, as someone who's watched Peterson for a really long time, you know, nothing is his whole sort of um, second career as a sort of public intellectual um, was started on his unwillingness to live by lies or to be compelled to live by a lie. And so to me, when I saw Peterson go after uh, the Pope using, you know, hashtag social justice, I think he was responding to the way in which that kind of stuff is used and weaponized against, you know, whatever, the forces of our better angels or something like that. Um, so that that's that's how I heard that tweet. And that's what I saw from the Pope uh, or from the Pope's account. Um, and and then when I saw Jordan Peterson's reaction, I was like, that to me is what he was reacting to. Um, and now that doesn't mean I don't have a whole critique of Jordan Peterson's sort of um, uh, uh, focus on individualism over and against sort of community. Um, but I I don't hear in Jordan Peterson that same kind of inability to recognize the reality of community that I see in some of the kind of voices of hyper individualism, you know, because if you look at kind of uh, liberalism, right, sort of this large political project, roughly since 1700, right, you know, John Locke, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you know, the, that that sort of that 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 vision of liberalism uh, is is hyper individual and is sort of a, a problem, certainly in the context of of historical Christian faith. Um, but I think the church's response needs to be how to I don't know uh, cultivate a better balance between you know the 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 collective. Uh, over and against the individual, you know, because what I, you know, growing up, you know, or now even so when I hear people talk about the collective or, or, or some kind of socialism or something like that, you know, I see those as the mechanisms by which individual people were ground into submission and in, into pain. And I, I just, I, you know, I can't not hear that. And I, and knowing enough about Jordan's P, Jordan Peterson's perspective and the genesis of his own intellectual project, I think he probably hears the same thing. Well, I do want to talk about that whole thing about individualism, because I think that's a really interesting aspect of the conversation um, that will get us back eventually to the, the actual Catholic thinking about mm -hmm. The, the work of social justice within the church. Right. But before we do, I want to go back and ask you about this um, idea of the Pope as a, I guess you could say he's a symbol of something larger. Yep. Um, but, but that symbol, as you said, exists in media and in the, in the news and in people's minds and hearts and, and, uh, but to what extent when, and, and leave aside the Pope's uh, Twitter feed, but yeah, just yeah, say yeah. The, the Pope's proclamations, his periodic, when he just says something, if he's talking to a newsman, for example, mm -hmm. to what extent are his thoughts, can they be considered his own personal thoughts as Monsieur Bergoglio? And to what extent are they considered to be a proclamation of the church at large? 
Does that make sense? Yeah, that's a great question. Okay, so so Karen, you are you're an evangelical. Is that roughly speaking correct? How would I characterize you? If that yeah, I, I mean, I guess I've, I've been in and out of churches that would be considered charismatic or evangelical mm-hmm. or um, reformed. I've, I've been through a lot of different churches. Mm-hmm. I, I have a center. My center is Christ, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, and and so more and more i'm very intrigued by both catholicism and orthodox christianity sure and um so i would say my personal practice would probably lean more in that direction sure okay but i okay. but i do still attend an evangelical church which is well it's a it's a presbyterian adjacent church so it probably swings a little bit more towards reformed yeah okay so uh, you are blissfully unaware of the, the 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 war that is going on in Catholicism as we speak. I'm a the, little bit aware because of hearing news here and there about. I mean, I, yeah. and I watch your Twitter feed and yeah. others. So you know the the issue around the the abuse from the past and how that's impacted where things are going today. Right. And so you yeah. So you've got a couple. You, yeah. So you've got a bunch of moving parts here right now. But um. So um, the two previous popes, um, Benedict the Sixteenth, Cardinal Ratzinger, and then prior to him was uh, John Paul the Second, Cardinal Wotia. Um, they um. So. I'm trying to think the best way to sort of to get to get at this. All right, I'll start with okay. So so Pope Francis um, is uh, different um, in some some peculiar ways to the two prior popes. I've noticed uh, that. I mean, yeah. I, I I I've watched the news for many years, so yeah, yeah, yeah. So. So, um, and I and I think one of the tells, and this is not the only tell, and maybe I'll get in trouble here, but I think you'll probably understand what I'm telling you because you you said you watch the news. The way in which this pope is covered by the mainstream press versus the way that the prior two popes were covered by the mainstream press, I think is a tell of some sort. It's not the only thing, but it is certainly a tell. And I would say that the rough strokes of it are like this. Um, we like Francis. We did not like Benedict, and we did not like really Wotiwa or John Paul II. Um, uh, we like Francis because Francis seems more open to being like us, um, you know, which is being weird in that, what is it, uh, Western, uh, you know what I'm talking about, the the acronym. Um, uh, no, I haven't heard that acronym. <laughs> uh, hold on. I'm, for a minute, I, I thought you meant it for real. And <laughs> What? <laughs> So I always get this wrong, but the uh, is a book by Joseph Henrik. Uh, it's called The Weirdest People in the World. And it's how the West became psychologically peculiar and particularly prosperous. Um, but the weird stands for, gosh, I should know this off the top of my head. I'm sorry. Um, but I think it's worth, it's, it's worth this, having this conversation. Okay. But the weirdest people in the world are us, right? You know, um, uh Oh, geez, I'm going to kill this poor podcast. I'm so sorry, Karen. Um, uh, it's Western, uh, geez, Western, um, 
Well, do you want to take a break and look it up? Let, let's yeah, just, can you give me just, just give me two seconds? Yeah. Ready? Yeah. So by weird, he means um, Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic, right? And so uh, the Pope, uh, our current Pope, seems to be the most cozy with the weird project. All right. Um, and the two prior popes very much saw themselves as certainly part of the West. You know, you can't really even conceive of the West and not think about the Roman Catholic Church, whether you find yourself inside the, the, the Roman Catholic Church or on the outside of the Roman Catholic Church, you know, but uh, that uh, Benedict and John Paul II uh, saw themselves as playing, uh, especially in the wake of the, the various uh, social revolutions of the 60s and 70s as being a kind of uh, a bulwark or a stay against the kind of confusions in the aftermath of those revolutions. Right. And so uh, and of course, the biggest two topics that they were most at odds with the, the sort of the Western consensus um, had everything to do about sex. Right. Uh, had everything to do about sex, uh, marriage, abortion, you know, those kinds of things, those those sorts of things. And so um, now Francis has never said one thing contrary, really, uh, to those things in, in an official capacity. Um, but I would say the watershed moment for the Pope, the current Pope, was that he was, in fact, um, on a plane uh, heading to one of his trips somewhere. And uh, they were asking him about um, homosexuality. And he sort of shrugged his shoulders and basically said, who am I to judge? And I'm sure as someone who watches the, the news, Karen, I'm sure you remember that. I mean, it was about mm -hmm. nine and a half years ago, something like this. Well, this was immediately greeted by the Western um, media establishment and cultural establishment is like, finally, we have a pope who's going to sort of do something about this pesky retrograde, uh, you know, reactionary um, uh, uh, entity called the Roman Catholic Church. And it'll finally kind of get up to the times. It'll kind of get with it. So, so. Now, uh, now, now, remember, how did that statement happen? Who am I to judge? It wasn't in a document, you know. It wasn't in a in a, an encyclical. It wasn't at a, at an audience. It wasn't in any kind of like what we would cons consider sort of like official capacities. He was just answering questions, interacting with journalists on on the on on the plane, right? So, what? How binding is that? You know, you know, and and so, um, you know, and so, at any rate. But now, I, I won't. Well, and when when he said, "Who am I?" Was right. he speaking personally, I, or was he speaking I as the pontiff? Exactly. I think that's another yeah. question, right? Right, right. <clears throat> because and, and I I could even interpret that as a completely harmless statement totally. if he's talking about his own personal. Correct. I mean, I feel the same way about any issue who am i to judge right. anybody right? right well and and you know so so the answer uh you know that that the catholic catechism would have given you you know it is certainly the one that he had growing up uh, as a kid as a, as a, as, a, as a catholic you know child is that um a reasonable person is uh, the man who is to judge uh, these sorts of things, right? Uh, the reasonable, properly oriented, uh, you know, in fully integrated person. That's the person who is to judge, right? Now, I would say that there's a sort of well, a, a, a it, double when they, when they say judge there, do they mean judge or do, do they mean discern? Right. Amen. Right. Right. So do they mean, do they mean like, is, is Jim going to hell because Jim uh, is, is, has same sex attraction? You know, or, you know, what are we even talking about? Right. And so I, I think those things kind of matter, like or, well, and or also, can a reasonable person, a reasonable person can discern. Right. 
right from wrong based on teaching and so forth. But can a reasonable person judge another person? Right. right. Are we talking so. about, are we talking about ultimate judgment? Yeah. Where, you yeah. Know, you're, yeah, no, exactly. So, but it doesn't matter, as you know, like these memes have a way of kind of working themselves back into, in, into the, the sort of the cultural matrix. And it doesn't really matter what the Pope meant, what the way that it was interpreted by factions in the church is that the church is going to change. Uh, Francis is going to change the church's teachings on um, human sexuality, right? And, you know, there's never been clarification really of what that means, right? So the, the church has sort of been in this sort of strange, the, the Roman Catholic church has been in this very strange kind of ambiguous space for a really long time. And then you start looking at other things. Well, you know, who is the Pope appointing to uh, positions of power and influence? Who is the Pope um, uh, decommissioning uh, from positions of power and influence, right? So you're left to sort of do all these sorts of things. And so, you know, one wonders um, about this notion, like, well, in what capacity is the Pope speaking? You know, um, now, again, this might bore your audience, but, you know, this is a hugely consequential question for Roman Catholics, especially in the wake, not only of the Second Vatican Council, but of the First Vatican Council. Now, the First Vatican Council uh, was done, I, I want to say, is in the 1860s and 70s, something like that, right? And um, uh, I don't have the exact date, so sorry, uh, somebody can fact check me in the comments. Um, but uh, that in that uh uh, council famously and infamously, uh, depending upon your perspective, uh, the dogma of uh, papal infallibility was first um, promulgated, right? Oh, that that's that late in the history. Yes. Oh, my it's goodness. That, oh, yeah. how interesting. Wow. So, yeah. And, you know, um, I would, if anybody's interested in this, I can recommend, um, you know, read up on the First Vatican Council. It's very, very interesting and, and really eye-opening. Um, there's a great book by uh, Timothy O'Malley, I think is his first name, but O'Malley is his last name, and it's just called Vatican One. Um, it's great. It's a great history of sort of what's going on. So, um, so, so what does infallibility mean, right? And so you have some people who have a very sort of high... Uh, vision of what papal infallibility stands for. You have some people who have a kind of a low view of what papal infallibility means. And it's very difficult to get a, a sort of a definition of what, what it actually means. Um, because the, 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 the way that I always understood papal infallibility, certainly growing up and certainly in the kind of the context of, of John Paul II and Benedict XVI, is that it was a sort of um, a rule facing the current occupant of the chair of St. Peter, meaning that uh, the, 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 the Pope's responsibility was to teach nothing discordant with church teaching, the, 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 you know, the dogmatic dogmatics and in, 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 the, in, the, in the history of the tradition of the church's teaching. Whereas some people interpret that, well, the Pope kind of has what you might call a kind of blank check, right? Uh, sort of, uh, in which you can kind of take the, the you know, the church in, in, in the way that you see fit. And so, so the current 
fans of Pope Francis have that kind of view. Well, the Pope is, you know, he he changed the teaching on the death penalty. You know, he's changing the teaching on divorce and remarriage, you know, and what else is he going to change? And so it's you have this very interesting dynamic that those people that had considered themselves sort of basically conservative or even traditional had a kind of view of the papacy that was sort of a, a safeguarding of orthodoxy and but now you have an occupant of the the chair of saint peter um who has a much more active and more constructive view of what papal infallibility could mean right so it's this so you know your question that sort of kicked started you know, kicked me off into this this long diatribe you know you know in what capacities does the pope say anything it's a question and it's a problem. It's it's a real problem. I would say as a as a, as a as a as a Roman Catholic um, layman who's trying his best to not only practice his faith but to pass on his faith to his children. Uh, it's a real question. Well, and, and so then, so then, sorry, uh, you know, then this brings in the whole the coziness with let's say liberation theology. You know, John Paul II and Benedict the Sixteenth had a very clear sense of what liberation theology was and why it ran afoul of basic orthodoxy. And now you have someone who maybe is of a different opinion about that. How consequential is that, Karen? I well, why don't you tell people with what uh, John Paul II and Benedict XVI would have said about, um, well, first of all, from your perspective, what was liberation theology and what would they have said was the problem with liberation theology? If you can do that. Yeah, yeah, I know. I, 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 I'm probably going to be somewhat inartful in this, so apologies in advance. But I mean, uh, uh, well, I'm so, putting you on the spot. <laughs> that's OK. That's, hey, I signed up for this. Right. So um, it's not it's not your fault. Um, so um, as some of as, as you may remember, of course, Pope uh, John Paul II was is Polish. And he uh, was a, um, a seminarian uh, through the transfer from Nazi occupation into communist occupation of Poland. And so his entire, basically his entire um, seminary experience was done illegally and, uh, you know, secretively, right? So that the relationship between the, the Polish church and those states, those uh uh, inimical states uh, um, was something that was deeply informative for his uh, both his sort of uh, you know his own sort of personal formation, but his formation as a priest. And so he uh, was very much motivated by um, and and was Ratzinger after him, but 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 John Paul II was very motivated by the lies that what he would have called the lies of the culture of death. And he would have said one of the chief architects of the of the of the culture of death is Marxism. Right. And he would include a, a number of other isms in there. But Marxism was certainly high atop his list, especially since uh, Marxism had so greatly um, influenced and uh, uh, tortured him and his people. Right. And so he was very much motivated uh, against um, um, political Marxism. Um, and I think also philosophical and theological Marxism as well, so much so that when he uh, went to visit uh, some of the South American um, states in the early 80s, he got into these 
pretty epic um rows with with some of the the, the local jesuits um uh it should be pointed out um and um, high powered churchmen who were sort of um playing along with uh this kind of uh liberation theology now as always, you have to sort of contextualize this. Well, why would the church have understood its role in part being uh, uh, to be a, a Marxist in South America? Well, you know, there weren't all bad reasons. There were a lot of good reasons because you had corrupt regimes that had had indeed uh, inflicted uh, oppressive policies against native peoples and and the poor. And, you know, as a sort of a kleptocracy and all of those sorts of things. And I think John Paul's take would have been like, yeah, those things are wrong. Call them wrong. But you don't correct a wrong by importing uh, uh, perhaps an even more malignant wrong in the form of, of, of Marxism and communism. So I think um, he uh, spoke very uh, persuasively against those sort of currents of Marxism in the church because, after all, he grew up uh, and was a was a young priest and a young bishop in in inside you know behind the Iron Curtain. So I think he knew very clearly what it led to, um, and so uh, he brooked no. Um, he had no patience for liberation theology, much to the chagrin, remember, of the academic establishment. Well, my understanding of it, too, I mean, my entree into the world of liberation theology was that as a new believer, I was in a church that was very active with missionaries from around the world. And right. missionaries would come frequently to the church and talk to us. And uh, periodically, a missionary would come who was very knowledgeable and would give us a seminar on something. And one of the guys was a missionary from Colombia who was so disturbed by what was happening with liberation theology that he had gone to Oxford and gotten a doctorate in liberation mm. theology so that mm. he would know the language and would be able to speak into it. And when he was giving us this seminar, my understanding of it was that the Marxists just saw an opportunity when they began to see the the language shift a little bit they said ha that's a language we can use and they began to twist that language up and then use that language to convert some of the scholars to their side and then they could go they could take that into the churches and say see we are the ones who are really on your side we're the ones who really understand social justice and want to help the poor and and so they twist all this language and then they're recruiting guerrillas to go out in the mountains and fight, you know. And yeah. so the, and, the church is just disintegrated. Yeah. And a big, uh, you know, a big um, an active um, uh, uh, group of people you know, involved in that process were, were the Jesuits. Right. Of which um, Pope Francis is a Jesuit. He's not a he's not a secular priest. He's a he's an order priest. Right. In other words, he didn't come up through the normal diocesan ranks, you know, uh, but rather was part of a, of a religious order. Uh, that's the difference a religious order versus a secular order. Uh, I don't mean secular like, you know, secularism. Um, but he um, is part of the, of the Jesuit order. Now, interestingly enough, um, he sort of had a reputation earlier on in his career as sort of being against a lot of the excesses of the more ardent sort of lefty um, uh, liberation uh, brother priests in his order. Um, but I think there's, I don't know. So I don't know how all that, 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 that played out, but it was very much part of his formative experience. Now, um, how do I say this part? I think uh, that the the academic uh, 
institutional Catholicism, um, like all academic institutions, has not only skews left, but has become increasingly left uh, over time. And so John Paul II and Benedict XVI were very much seen as sort of voices counter to that consensus. And so, so for somebody like me who grew up, uh, you know, like I told you earlier, I sort of read my way back into the faith. Um, I saw in John Paul II and Benedict XVI a necessary corrective to the kind of warmed over leftism that I had received in, in school. Right, so that they were sort of giving voice to a, a more ancient, more vibrant, more life-giving gospel than the the social justice gospel that I had received in school, and so, uh, so, so there are just some really interesting kind of wrinkles in the 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 the, the scene, so to speak, right? And so Francis is very much a retro uh it's a very much a kind of retro experience for those of us sort of my age and older because people around my age and older sort of thought that that church of the 70s and 80s that kind of liberation theology church of the 70s like we sort of thought it was over we thought that benedict and 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 john paul before him had sort of come and kind of you know policed the the borders of that stuff and kind of put it on the back burner and 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 my read on it and people might accuse me of being um uncharitable but i just I, i'm just trying to call balls and strikes i have no dog in the fight really um that that francis has resurrected those voices from my childhood um uh and and has um uh used them as a kind of way of dismantling the unified response that were embodied in Benedict and John Paul II's papacies. You know, so if you if you think of the, them, them as sort of, if you are a pope, you have a kind of project, right? You, you know, uh, the project of John Paul II and the project of Benedict XVI um, were in retrospect an attempt to render the proper interpretation of the Second Vatican Council. So the Second Vatican Council, if the First Vatican Council takes place in the in the late the second half of the 19th century, the the Second Vatican Council is convened in 19 in early 1960, 61, 62, 63, 64, and it is a multi-year process, and and it brings in bishops and cardinals from all around the world, and and so this is sort of the the sort of the 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 opening up, you know, the, the sort of the two buzzwords you hear in Catholic circles there are a journal and and um and um which means uh 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 i'm gonna forget the two words here uh the 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 two um the the notion of you have to return to the sources and you have to sort of do a reset right you know um uh resourcement and a george aggiornamento right uh so to go back to the sources is a resourcement and a aggiornamento is sort of to, uh bring up to date these are the sort of the two buzzwords right now those are good things, right? Going back to the sources is always a good thing. You know, uh, updating something for the current moment is a good thing, but it really depends upon how you answered the question. This is what I tweeted out earlier today is for what, right? Return to the sources for what, you know, bringing up to date 
for what? Those are really important questions. And so you had all these sort of forces in the in the Second Vatican Council. Well, they thought, oh, well, this means that we can kind of scrap all the old stuff that we didn't like, all the old kind of stodgy, unfortunate stuff, and we can sort of create a new church. Benedict and John Paul II, remember, they were sort of, you know, they worked hand in glove for, for many, many years. They saw the Second Vatican Council not as a break from tradition, but as a kind of an opening up of tradition. Whereas those forces that were working against Benedict and John Paul II, they saw this as a, as a, uh, as a, as a, as a, as a break, not a continuity. And so you see those two buzzwords in Catholic circles. Is the Second Vatican Council um, a movement of the Holy Spirit of continuity, or is it a movement of the Holy Spirit as a break from the past and a movement into the future? And how you answer that question is hugely consequential. So John Paul II, Benedict, they saw it as continuity. Sure, some things change here and there. We're going to update how we understand certain these things, but basic the basics have remained the same. The breakers, right? The the you know the 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 sort of the the discontinuity folks. They see this as a whole new church, and so those forces have now a kind of aligned right behind um, Francis, and they see this as an opportunity to undo the work of Benedict and John Paul II, and to finally bring forth this. You know, I'm. This is me saying, you know, the the sort of this age of Aquarius Church that they always wanted, and those stodgy conservatives never let them have. So that is very much, I think, the, at the heart of the fight that's going on right now in my in my church. The whole thing is just so interesting. So, what year was John Paul II? Uh, so he so he ascended to the papacy in 1978. All right. Okay. And then and so. And so the changes that the 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 stop that he was trying to put out that probably took a few years for that to kind of percolate out through the church. Yeah. Okay, so I became a Christian in 1980. I'm in this little country church, yeah. and uh, the pastor's wife had a women's Bible study, <clears throat> and she invited all the ladies in the neighborhood to be part of this women's Bible study. And more and more Catholic ladies were coming to this women's yeah. Bible study because. They were so disturbed by what had been happening yeah. in the church from this Second Vatican Council thing. Yeah. I didn't know at that time that that's what they were disturbed by. Right. But they were so they were coming in and then they were becoming Christian. Yeah. 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 No, no, I know. I right? know exactly what you're talking in about. In this Bible about. study and mm -hmm. converting into this little church. Mm -hmm. And uh, and and I had some very dear friends that were very involved with me in the in the movement to save education back yeah. in the early 1980s, we were working. I knew them politically, not, mm -hmm. not by faith. Yeah. Then I became a Christian and, uh, and they were part of the Catholic church. They had a bunch of kids and just really great people, but they were mm -hmm. so disturbed by what was happening in the church. Yeah. The iconoclasm of that era is really um, underrated in how, um, disruptive it was to sort of the normal world oh, it people. must have been because i invited yeah. these people to come to church with me one sunday and they were so struck by the the uh evidence of the holy spirit That's in right. our That's midst right, right? Yeah. and right. and then that whole family converted into yeah. this little church that we were in yeah. and to that to this day all the kids from that family are evangelicals and they all have their families and their kids and their worship leaders and their mm -hmm. bible teachers mm -hmm. and so forth mm -hmm. so 
whatever happened in the Catholic Church with the Second Vatican Council had a very destructive power on the rank and file members. Yes. Who just and remember like they had to go someplace where they could find Christ again. That's right. And remember, you know, the the you know, most people didn't read the documents of, of the Second Vatican Council. Their experience of the council is what they saw in the newspaper reports, and really most significantly is the alterations to the liturgy. Right. You know, prior to 1966, let's say, um, every mass around the world was done in Latin, right? And uh, after 66, and there's a whole process of this, it is sort of officially gets promulgated and then it sort of gets carted out. But basically by 1969, let's call it, um, the, not only is the mass not in Latin anymore, it's in the, in the local vernacular, which is, you know, whatever, fine. Um, but the, the whole um, ethos of the thing uh, radically changes radically changes and um you know so in some places that was done handled well but most places it was done again i keep keep going back to this word radical like it's just it's totally different and and not only that you have an entire culture of like nuns and priests and brothers that sort of behave one way you know two years ago and now it's completely different you know that you know no habits no cassocks no yeah, no, yeah no, i no, saw all those changes all that stuff right and yeah. you know yes i can sit here and intellectually kind of walk you through the process of why that's not a big deal and blah 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 but in terms of like the lived reality of that all of a sudden you went through this very thick world where everything kind of made sense and everything was kind of in its place basically and there were problems i'm not a sentimentalist about these sorts of things to all of a sudden this sort of radical reorientation where you've got people like dancing at church and you know guitars at church and the priest is leaving the priesthood and running off with sister jane and like you know it's it's really wacky i mean it's it reminds me, honestly, you know, it reminds me of the kind of ev evocative stories that you hear, like about the French Revolution, like, like crazy stuff. And I think for most people, like, you know, your friends, they're like kind of looking at all this sort of stuff, be like, well, this is nuts. And so I want to go back, I want to find a place where I can, you know, um, be connected to the spirit, you know, uh, walk with Jesus and raise my family. Like, it's not complicated. You know, and so yeah, I'm not even, surprised even at all. Though, even though there were guitars in our church. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, but but again, no, I know, I know, I and you know, I, I like guitars; they're fine. You know, but 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 the, I'm just talking about the, the the change of that is such a radical thing that at least you know, um, you know, my mom, my mom talks about this, you know, because she, you know, she was very fortunate, as she would say, is that she found a a group of charismatic Catholic. Uh, a charismatic Catholic community uh, through which she was able to sort of keep um, attached to Christ. Um, but, uh, and, and that, that sort of remained her North star and the, all the other stuff, it, it, it was what it was, but she could sort of, she yeah. had her, her kind of North star there. I think yeah. a lot of people were not so fortunate as your friends, I think are, are a perfect example of. And so you've well, got a and, whole and contingent I, in the church. I a lot of friends that were, out, that were part of the Catholic charismatic movement at very, very deep deeply meaningful relationships I had with all those friends. So yeah, I, there was well, that, something really have, great going you'd on. You love my mom. I mean, that's, yeah. that's my mom's speech right there. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's go back to this idea about in, the individual individualism. Yeah. Um, Jordan Peterson's tweet said, if I re recall, um, salvation is not a matter of social justice, but a matter of um, the redemption of the individual. 
something like that. Yeah. The salvific redemption of the individual. So anyway, he was using very religious language for someone who's not. Apparently uh, not, not a Christian. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I don't know. I've listened to him a lot and I've listened to him a lot lately in the last couple of years. And I've mm. seen a big shift in his language and in his demeanor when he talks about Christ. So I have no idea. But anyway, back to this idea of the individual. You said, I think, that um, you don't believe that he means the kind of hyper-individualism that people were reacting to. The, the, the Western, educated, industrialized, yeah. rich, democratic version of individualism. Right, right. Right? I don't think he does. Um, you know, again, for me, when I listen to Jordan Peterson, I... I, I'm always what's always at the forefront of my imagination is that you know he was really I mean if if you look at the way he talks about the, the genesis of his entire um, intellectual project right and it has always been as what what would make people act so disgusting and 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 devil like um, that that the gulag and the concentration camps were um, not only stomached but but seen as good things. So I'm, I'm always looking at what he says in, in that context. And so my reading of his, uh, you know, now look, a lot of people in this corner, Paul may be included, will say that, that Jordan Peterson is desperately trying, desperately trying to hold on to modernism. I, I get what they're saying. Um, but I think he's trying to reclaim um, a better a better individualism uh, you know an individualism that has that is much more ancient because you know you listen to a lot of peterson right i mean mm -hmm. i i could hear him saying like well you know it depends upon what you mean by individual right i mean as as the sort of the classic peterson meme would go right well, what do you mean by an individual like well when you hear him talking about an individual well, every individual is nested in exactly that, exactly right? exactly nested in, and there are many kales right you know, and 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 that, that there's a sort of a a kind of um, executive kale, perhaps, right? That sort of operates all these sub kales, right? In in terms of um, making them work, and so therefore, even the individual is a kind of a community. I think he would say, um, and so you're already dealing with um, the more than one uh, from the get-go. So then what, what might we ask? I mean, maybe we, no, nobody's really done this game. Well, you know, Karen, when you hear Jordan Peterson talk about the in individual, what do you hear him to me? Well, I hear him saying that, that the, in order to be an integrated individual, you have to be nested in a community because your, your plans should include having an intimate partner, yeah. And then having children with that intimate partner. And if for some reason that's not possible to have an intimate partner or to, you know, then at least you're nested in the community of your parents and your sisters and your brothers. And that within that community, you're working together to try to make your local neighborhood a better place. And that within the neighborhood, you're looking to be good citizens in your community. And then the community, and it, 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 goes out from there but you yeah. start with the individual because if you start with the community you're not really connected to you're not doing anything you're just 
part of this ethos of the community, but or, 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 or maybe action, right? Or maybe you're just a, like a part of a machine. Yeah. You know, so I, I do read a lot of sort of anti the machine sort of spirit in, in Peterson. You know, I, 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 there was a funny um, clip of Peterson. This was early on. This is what I think it was during his first book tour. And he was talking about the Simpsons and he was talking about sacrifice and he was talking about Homer and Homer uh, at some point eats like an entire jar of mayonnaise. And somebody's like, you know, dad, like, what do you do? What do you do? And he's like, Oh no, no, that's not my problem. That's a problem for future Homer. Right. And, and I, I always made me laugh because I'm a huge Simpsons fan. Um, but it, it is also, it's true. Right. So that, so that, Peterson is trying to understand the individual both as a sort of collection of sub-personalities um, in the moment, but also in the individual scaled out over time, right? So that so that that, that his joke about future Homer is like, well, you know, duh, your future Homer, right? You just don't know it yet. So 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 the the point the the point about his focus on the individual, I think, is that. And, and look, think about, you know, the client insistence on, you know, clean your room, right? Well, why, right? You know, wh why would that be, you know, something that you do, right? So, you know, or, 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 you know, I was thinking of this morning on my run, I was thinking of, of the rule, um, you know, treat yourself as if you were somebody worthy of being saved. I forget exactly how the rule goes, but. Worthy of being taken care of. Yeah. That, that's it. Right. Right. You know, it's like, well, why? You know, why, why is it easier for me to take care of you, Karen, than it is for me to take care of myself, right? And so, like, even like, even if you get into sort of the inner workings of these rules, he's always dealing with the community, th that nested community that you keep talking about. So then, going back to the tweet, why does he? Why is he punching up at Pope Francis's account? you know, in which Pope Francis is using this kind of the language of collectivism. You know, to me, he's punching up at this language of collectivism is because when you use your language in a lazy fashion this way, bad stuff happens. And, you know, in like, like gulags happen, right? I mean, like that sort of thing. And then, and then, and then, and then maybe too, you know, with this sort of this, this language of, 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 of collectivism, you know, um, what about the bad that comes about through that, through that employment of collectivism versus the, the sanctity of the individual? You know, do, do we believe that the individual is, is sacred? Um, I think we do. Well, isn't that what the, you, you clipped out from the Pope today? Yeah. Um, every human person is sacred and inviolable. To ensure that a society has a future, it is necessary that a sense of respect be matured for the dignity of every person, no matter in what condition they find themselves. Yeah. Now, there's a lot buried in there. I mean, he's saying a lot. Yeah. But, but to start with, to say every human person is sacred and inviolable, I was sort of raised by at least since I've become a Christian and read things and tried to understand historical fact and everything else, that part of our tradition, at least here in this country, is, you know, leave no man behind. Right. Every right. single individual counts. That That's what differentiates, or in the past at least, has differentiated our military from other militaries, mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. that 
a military man is not just part of the machine. He's not just important because right. he is a fighter. Right. He is a human being, an individual, and his life is worth saving. So even if you sacrifice your own life on his behalf, you've done a valuable thing to save that person. And so every individual counts. And that to me, that's my understanding of individual as opposed from the state being the center of everything. Right. So, right. Yeah. Right. So, so yeah. So in other words, if I'm understanding you correctly, that, the that the, the dignity uh, and the sacredness and the inviolability of each and every individual comes not from the state, but it comes from uh, the, the, the fact, the miracle that Peterson calls it in a different context, uh, that we are all made in the image and likeness of God. Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, he's been insistent upon that. I mean, I've never heard him not talk about uh, the miracle. I mean, he calls it, I mean, in many uh, contexts, he calls it a miracle of, of, of civilization that he says is not at all self-evident you know, uh, mm -hmm. that we are made in the image and likeness of God. Um, and so, um, so this is the guy, right, Karen, like, this is the guy who sends out that tweet. So my, my, my reaction to it is like, well, let's try to understand what, what, what triggered Jordan? <laughs> Cause I know yeah. he believes in, 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 you know, in, in the sacredness of, 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 of individuals. He believes in the, in, in the nested reality. I, so I, I don't know. I don't know. Well, and I, I mean, I heard Paul say something on, on that uh, live stream yesterday. <clears throat> I think he was talking with Nate, okay. and, but Paul made the comment that, you know, he thinks Jordan is still trying to maintain his visibility and, you know, that part of the reason he does things is so that, and part of the reason that he interviews the people he does is that they're high profile and it keeps his profile high and everything. Well, okay, maybe, fair enough. I don't know. I tend to, I tend to not think that I try not to think that way about people. I try not. And I, and I'm not, there's no accusation against Paul. Yeah. yeah. You're not <laughs> I'm just saying that. that, that struck me funny because um, I would like to give Paul, I would like to give Jordan Peterson as much leeway as I would give anybody else, not trying to assume that they're doing something for some particular reason All right okay like for Karen, me Karen. part of jordan peterson's reason for what he does is that he really cares about people and he thinks the best way to help people is to help them clean clean their find, well find truth be informed but with actual truth and not be informed with this murky mm -hmm thing that's happening now where nobody knows where to find truth because the news is all suspect and everything is suspect and so the best way to keep that truth out there is through talking to people who have pieces of the truth and keep trying to build the picture i don't see him with some underlying oh i want to be famous and have a lot yeah. of money and keep my profile high and you know i i yep. just don't see it i don't think that's the primary vector either i i uh, how about this i mean I've noticed this thing, you know, he said something like this before, as has like Douglas Murray. There's this sense, there's this annoyance on the part of non-Christians who are sympathetic to the Christian project, but for whatever reason can't bring themselves across, you know, fully mm -hmm. on board, something like that. Yeah. That, that, 
they want the church to be weird, right? It's that whole it's that old Malcolm Muggeridge thing, right? You know that that you want the church to be weird. You want the church to be true to itself, maybe as a way to put it, because the world doesn't need another UN. Sorry, uh, you know the world doesn't need another NGO. The world needs the church to be the church. And I wonder if this is Peterson sort of throwing a shot across the bow, being like, "Pope, like, do you know who you are?" You know, I mean, this is sort of what we were talking about earlier. Like, you're not, you're not some, you're not even some just like rando bishop in Argentina. You're the Pope of the world. Like, what, like, what are you doing? What are you doing using this kind of lazy language that has been weaponized and used against people for a long time now? Like, what are you doing? So in a way, he was actually showing a deep respect for the office of Pope. Well, I wonder that I do. That, that, that's sort of where I went in my own head, and and I'm like I, I'm I'm cognizant of the fact that people, you know, like, well, Kale, how come you're not extending the same charity to to the Pope? Um, and that's fair. I, and I look, I I very much have sort of thought that in my head, and I think it's because, and this is why I brought up, you know, the Pope's account versus the Pope. Jordan Peterson's Twitter account is Jordan Peterson, warts and all, right? The Pope's account is not the Pope's account, not the way that you and I operate our Twitter account, right? I don't know about you, Karen, but I don't have a, a team of operatives <laughs> who are busy, like, tweeting out these really bad tweets, you know, uh, all, all all day long and all evening long. No, that's me, you know, warts and all. Like, sometimes they're good and sometimes they're bad. Sometimes I'm a jerk and sometimes I'm not. I'm working on it, right? Um, but I, I, I think that that is an operative part of this conversation. And... Should the Pope have a Twitter account? You, you know, I mean, the fiction is that it's the Pope and he's there like, you know, like I knew that it was Donald Trump's Twitter account. Right. And I certainly would like, really, this is what we're doing. Like, we, you know, like uh, sometimes I would laugh. Sometimes I would cry. Sometimes I'd be disgusted. Sometimes I'd be like, what is Covefe? I don't, you know, so I, 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 I think it's like that. Like, what does it mean? You know, because I think Jordan would understand, uh, uh, you know, that that whoever sits in the chair, whether you're a Catholic or not, whoever sits in that chair, you darn sure want to make sure that that is not a frivolous person. You darn sure want to make sure that the people who are running that account are not frivolous, small minded, craven little, you know, uh, courtiers. Right. You want people who take that stuff seriously because you and I can sit here and dissect a tweet, you know, for whatever an hour and a half that we've been going here. Right. But mm -hmm. but some people are just going to sort of take it just what it is like. Oh, yeah. Hashtag social justice. Like, that's good. Like, that's potentially irresponsible. Well, yes. And I mean, all the language of that tweet was of that sort where it could have been taken five different ways, depending on which which side you're looking at, but but it's the kind of language that speaks directly to the heart of the project that wants to make everything a collective and wants to remove us from, to get us as far as possible from the source right. and to put us in a position where all our virtue needs to be only whatever we tweet and not what we actually do. And, you know, I mean, there there is there is a, 
there is a tribe that loves that kind of language and that if they can get you to use that language well, and, and even if even if that tribe didn't exist and in some, you know, here I am having a judgment against somebody after I just said I wouldn't have judgments against people. All you have to do <laughs> is go back to um, like Orwell. Orwell had this wonderful essay once on why we should not use cliches. Yeah, it is. Have you ever read it? Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. yeah it's so beautiful. Yeah. Well, that's exactly the reason why we shouldn't use that kind of language, because it's language that's completely had all the mean, the good meaning sucked out of it. And now it's just language that's useful to make tools out of people. Right. And I would say this just as sort of a warning to people, and I include myself in this warning, as be very, and this I think is, we've had these conversations in this little corner, right? I mean, there, there are esoteric things that happen in in subgroups, right? And peculiarities in which the way you use language, right? And I think it's always important for you to be aware of the peculiar ways in which you use language uh, over and against the sort of the, the the general assumed meaning of 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 shared language, right? And of course, any subgroup can use language how they see fit, but always, always, always be aware of how that language can be heard. And and Paul talked about this just yesterday, the day before that. As a pastor, he's very much aware of how his words are going to be heard versus how his words are meant. And I think that that's a good heuristic model, you know, to have um, that, you know, to be aware of, you know, when you use, sorry, this is Kale speaking, leftist pablum, um, you know, uh, under the, the account called pontifex, right? Understand the potential downstream consequences of how that language is going to be weaponized. Right. And um, so I think, I don't know, that, that's sort of where I, I land. Wow. I land on that. Well, OK, so let, let's end with this then, because mm -hmm. we started with and haven't gotten there yet. The idea of social justice, right. um, that is the kind of language that can easily be misunderstood. And yet there's a whole quadrant in this little corner mm -hmm. that fully got on board with the idea of social justice, because to them it means something different. So. What does social justice mean within the, the broader Catholic Church in terms of Catholic social teaching? And then, um, I mean, maybe there are yeah. some people who don't understand why social justice is triggering to you and me. And so maybe you could mm -hmm. say social justice triggers because of this, but this is what it means in larger Catholic teaching. I mean, that's a big question. You know, I would say that the, you have three minutes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I know. I gotta go bring my I'm daughter kidding, to I'm kidding. I, I have to go bring my daughter to driver's oh, ed. Okay. Um the the I think I I'm I prefer justice, right? I do too, yeah. Um and I I think that um using uh, appending social to the word um invites um opportunities to manipulate that now again in the tradition you know in catholic social teaching you know there's a tradition of of this but i think it's uh a recognition that the city of god uh is different than the city of man and that we are preparing ultimately for uh a forever um existence in the city of man 
uh, sorry, sorry, in the city of God. And so that we have an opportunity here in earth time uh, to practice. I mean, I think that's the part we mean when we say we practice our faith. We have an opportunity to practice and prepare ourselves to sing Sanctus, Sanctus, Sanctus in perpetuity uh, with uh, God and the heavenly host. And so uh, we have a certain responsibility to um, open up uh, those spaces in the, the here and now uh, to practice for that existence and uh, and to work and to work toward that. Um, I'm just deeply suspicious of of centralized, bureaucratized um, uh, power uh, used, uh, in such a way, I think it tends to end badly, and so I'm I'm a, a minimalist, and I, th I mean this might be something where me and Nate actually probably come together on is that I'm way more sympathetic to sort of a, a kind of Christian anarchism than I ever was uh, before, in part because I'm just deeply suspect of people who would use social justice as a way of capturing the means of production in that kind of Marxist idiom. Um, and so I think the church always is going to understand that Christ first and and the, that then becomes the sort of the, the point by which we orient everything else. If you cut Jesus out of that equation, then it's a, a recipe for tyranny. So social justice became a shortcut. You have justice, the biblical justice, and then you had Catholic social teaching mm -hmm. and somebody somewhere along the line got the idea well, we could just shortcut and not have to say Catholic social teaching and justice. Right. We could just say social justice. Right. But that fell right into the pocket of liberation theology, about which much more could be said. I have, I should probably do a whole sure. episode on liberation theology. <laughs> yeah, and if I could recommend, um, I think a, a great corrective to a hyper-individualist model um, which again, I don't think that this is where Jordan Peterson is coming from, but I think a great corrective to uh, this idea was actually written by Cardinal Ratzinger. It's a it's a it's a play. It's a piece called Space Salve. Uh, uh, in hope we are saved is the name of the encyclical, um, and he, he gets into this this sort of hyper individualism as a sort of a a bug of post French Revolution thought that I think is very worthy of a kind of corrective to the kind of social justice, you know, that triggers the, the two of us and certainly mm -hmm. triggered Gavin yesterday. Um, you know, I think that this, so that there is in fact a, a, a need to sort of remember the, the the community and the individual as being in a kind of tension and an important and necessary tension to preserve rather than sort of going all one way or all the other. So I think it's more about preserving that tension. But anyway, it's a great, I can send you the link, Karen. That um, would be great. I'd wonderful. love to put that in the notes. I'd love yeah. to read it myself because I think one of the big issues that we face is this, the way that education has glossed over the differences between the American Revolution and the French Revolution Oh, yeah. that was a huge divide and it's completely been covered over. And there are a lot of, I know a lot of young people who think, wow, French revolution. Great. They have no idea, you know? Well, it's funny. I'm literally in my, in my the class that I teach, um, we are, I'm about to teach, uh, for the next month on the French revolution. So it's very much in, um, on my brain right now. Well, it's very different than the American revolution. have the time in the future. I'd love to have that conversation. Yeah. So yeah. No, that'd be great. Yeah. Okay. You got to go. I got to go. This I do. Karen, perfect. it's been great. Thank you for having, thank you for having me on. Hopefully I made some sense. We'll see. 
So no, it was very stimulating. Thank you. All right. All right. You take care. Bye-bye.